this Sunday on a July 4th weekend. This is not a part of 1 Timothy. We're just going to take a one Sunday break. And if you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, the first nine verses. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, the first nine verses. I'll read it for us. I've entitled it, How to Deal with Problems in the Church. Okay, let's give our attention to this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul's first letter, happens to be the longest of Paul's epistles or letters. This is the longest one. Do you know why? Do you know why he had to write at length to this particular church? Well, it's because no other church had more problems. No other church had more issues. Now, don't be confused here. There are a couple other churches that Paul is irate. I mean, this church could be in worse condition because the church to the Galatians, he said, you've deserted and completely lost the gospel. That is the worst condition you could ever be in. The church ceases to be a church. But among the churches that still retain or recall the gospel, this was the most problematic one. There were a lot of issues. And I just want to start by saying I picked this passage not because recently there were all kinds of conflicts and problems and distresses. No. I think you should talk about problems when relatively a church is pretty healthy and doing really well. Like you can only deal with issues of like, drunkenness when you're sober. You can only fix your math or academic problems when you actually start getting it right. And so our stage in life of the church, I could not be more encouraged these days, but yet I find that this is incredibly helpful and proactive and constructive for us in this good season to think about and to be prepared to deal with inevitable problems to come. More and more problems always in the life of the church. So I've just got two, two angles to this. We're gonna talk about the problems that Paul addresses in the Corinthian church, and then second, Paul's perspective. The problems of the Corinthian church, and then Paul's perspective. In other words, how did Paul deal with problems in the Corinthian church, and then we'll just close with a couple applications. Okay, problems, lots of problems. This church was planted on Paul's second missionary journey. He spent a year and a half in a town called Corinth, and he started a church. Enough people came and responded to Jesus as God and Savior. They turned away from their sin, followed Jesus as their Savior and Master. 
but their surrounding culture in this town was known for its licentiousness, its wild and loose living. And unfortunately, this church regressed so much so, it was so young and immature, that instead of being countercultural, the people of God are supposed to be distinctive and different in good ways, this church became exactly like its surrounding culture. Maybe some of the reasons is because it was located in between two bodies of water, in between two seas in Greece. There are many business travelers who would come through Corinth. It was also known as a cosmopolitan population, Greek, Romans, Jews, urban and young, business travelers, single, going afar. That's a recipe for a lot of things. It was also known as an entertainment center. They did not hold the Olympic Games, but the second kind of event that was second in popularity to the Olympic Games was called the Isthmian Games. This was held in Corinth. And it was also a center for religious attractions or religious idol worship and all kind of syncretism. Uh, on the skyline, the commentators have reported that Corinth is beautiful city, at night, you could see the temple of Aphrodite. And there, there were thousands of priests and prostitutes and temple servants. Gordon Fee, he described Corinth as, quote, at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Well, a church started. And Paul, years and years later, has to write with an ache in his heart that Christian people, people of God, you're not supposed to live just like Corinth, but you're supposed to live after and reflect Christ. But here are some of the problems that they started to deal with. Chapters one and four, massive divisions. Massive divisions. Chapter three, Paul presses in and says there's continual strife, social strife. People just don't get along. They hate. Chapter 5, Paul addresses an issue of sexual immorality, the likes of which, which would make our non-believing friends somewhat embarrassed and ashamed. But Paul talks about the church. The way you're dealing with this is so complacent, so arrogant. I must tell you what to do with it. Chapter 6, Christian people can't resolve their conflicts. They're going out to the court of law and they're suing one another. Chapter 7, Paul has to deal with all kinds of confusion and objections and questions about celibacy, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Chapters 8 through 10, idolatry was rampant. Idolatry was rampant. People thought you could worship Jesus on a certain day or in a certain compartment or dimension, but the rest of your life you could start worshiping other things. Paul deals with that. Chapter 11 talks about gender roles and gender confusion as well. Chapter 12 and 14, Paul has to address biblically the abuse of spiritual gifts. How it is utterly chaotic in the Corinthian church. The abuse of it. Chapter 11, Paul has to address people getting drunk. Like getting drunk, like systematic, like regular. That's your MO. It's not once in a while, but... Oh, you'll find so-and-so this weekend. I'm sure he or she is drunk. But this is not at a club. This is not at a bar. People were getting drunk at church during communion. I thank God our church is a little better than that. 
But people were getting dead drunk during the Lord's Supper. And Paul has to deal with that problem. Well, I think the most deepest root problem of all the problems he addresses in chapter 15 is that people became hyper-spiritualized, overly spiritual, so they started to diminish the value of the physical world and the physical body, and they started to deny that Jesus was bodily resurrected, that Jesus was raised from the death with his physical body. Paul has to set that straight. So those are just some of the problems. Those are just some of the problems. Well, what was Paul's perspective? How did Paul deal with or address problems in this church? Can I ask you to consider, what would you write? What kind of letter would you write to this church? Let me stack the context here. What would you write to a church that you planted? In essence, your name is written all over it. You're the granddaddy or the grandma of this church. You gave so much to this church. But behind your back, they started to speak evil of you, which they did with Paul. They opposed him, questioned his apostolic authority. They publicly and personally disgraced him. They hurt him. They just went the other way. What would you say or feel or think or do? With not just problems, I'm talking about deeply pain-inducing people. And I want us to examine what you normally say or feel or do or think and what you might write to a church like this up against Apostle Paul's own letter, his perspective. Oh, here's how he started to the church, to the church in chapter two. Chapter two means people got called out by God. Church means ecclesia, people, a gathering of the very people of God. Why? How does anyone become a person or the people of God? Not because I'm good, not because I'm a little bit more alert, not because I'm a little more well-studied, no. God just called you. That's how you become a church. Paul goes on in the same verse and says, sanctified, sanctified. Sanctified means you are being changed inside out. You are being transformed. I just told you, though, that there's all these problems of where clearly they have not changed. They have regressed. They have stayed so immature that you could not even differentiate who's Christian and who's not in Corinth. How does Paul begin with sanctified in Christ Jesus? We'll get there, but that's his perspective. Church, sanctified, then he uses this really funny word, right? The ancient word, nobody uses this word, but it's synonymous with Christian, saints. He says saints. I'm sure a lot of us, the most scandalous people at a church or other churches, you do not use that word to describe that person. Paul says, you're saints. How are you a saint Because of what God did for you in Jesus and how he credits you and views you, not on the basis of your conduct or behavior. Church, sanctified, saints, and then he issues a benediction. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul blesses the very people 
He started, invested in, prayed for, gave his heart and soul to, but have turned their backs on him. He starts with a benediction. You see, evidently for Apostle Paul, he doesn't just see problems. For Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, he doesn't just see painful people. He sees the God who formed the church. Did you notice by my count in the ESV, nine times literally the word, the name Jesus Christ appears. Nine verses. That's almost every verse. But then if you add every prepositional phrase where it says in him or to him or from him, belong to him, Jesus Christ, the name appears nine times. But if you talk about of, through, in, from, it's all over the place. And here is where Apostle Paul's perspective comes from. Apostle Paul doesn't just see problems. He doesn't just see people. He sees whose church this really is. Apostle Paul doesn't just see problems. He doesn't just see painful people. He sees who they really belong to. Paul's perspective emerges from the divine perspective that the church really belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's from him, for him, to him, and Jesus is going to complete his perfect work. Ah. Oh. This is why Paul can say, without being sarcastic, in verse 4, I always thank my God for you. I mean, would some of these words, this vocabulary, or this sequence even come to mind when you're writing to the very people who have disgraced you? But he begins with, I always thank God for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that is upon you. Paul calls out the evidences of God's grace upon the people of God. Verse 5, God has enriched you in every way. Verse 7, God has gifted you all by his grace. Verse 8 and 9, God is faithful. He's stronger. He's better. He's bigger. He's badder than your bad. And he's going to make you guiltless and faultless and perfect on the final day. Notice what Paul does not do. And this is the mark of young and fragile, insecure leadership. You're looking at one, myself. Anyone who goes into leadership position, management, executive, teacher, principal, you start ascending into leadership situations. One of the greatest things you're going to struggle with is not your students or your people or just problems. You're going to struggle with, within the staff or other managers or boss executives, you're going to start to feel what do I do with problems and conflicts there? And here's what a lot of young leaders do. You take things too personally. You just take things too personally. Every little thing that goes wrong, any kind of slight, or anyone who opposes you, or any little bit of constructive criticism, it like wrecks you. You lose sleep. And it really, really bothers you. Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't turn around and react personally. He doesn't ever say like, Corinthian church, 
do you know who I am? Like, do you know how much I've done for you? Do you know how much I still pray for you? Corinthian church, how dare you do this to me? He does not react personally. On the other hand, to have a Pauline perspective of grace does not mean you are lenient with or pretend or you forget about people's sin. He's got all these chapters left where he's going to deal with issues and problems of sins. It is not gracious to overlook sin that will destroy and be toxic to people. But the way that Paul deals with the problems and the sins of the people is something that we've got a lot to learn from. His perspective begins with the evidences of grace, not just the things you've got to correct. So my question for all of us, church, saints, people of God, which are you more aware of? Which do you make other people more aware of? Just the problems? Just the pain? Or a divine perspective? Are you the type that just obsesses over the crises, the crises, the cries, and the crises? Or do you ever look up at the call of God? I'll put it this way. Are you more aware of, and do people around you, do, get, do, 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 do they get to become more aware of the evidences of God's grace or just the areas in need of growth? Oh, I forget this, and I struggle with this. But if you and I are much more aware of and make other people more aware of whose church this really belongs to, who really started this church, who sustains the church, who's at work at the church, who's guaranteed to finish the church, you cannot lose faith, hope, and love. Is it contrary to popular misconceptions if I ask you, if Apostle Paul showed up to your small group, or for some of my dear brothers on a Friday night at a barbecue, he just, oh, I want to hang out with you guys, just share. Or he showed up to your class, or he showed up to your home, or he showed up to our church today. What do you think he'd be like? What do you think he'd be like? A lot of you would think, oh, that'd be scary. That man is going to be too stern. He's going to be too corrective. He's going to be like a divine consultant who's going to critique us up and down. You're totally mistaken. That's not what Apostle Paul would be like. I have evidence. Every single letter he begins with, I praise God and thank God always for you because of all these evidences of grace. And I think if you came near Apostle Paul, you would feel the full force, the full force of thanksgiving and praise to God. Not just a very critical, depressed, down, draining, problem-filled perspective. Oh, I really, really long to be like more like Apostle Paul. I need to be more like Apostle Paul. As a husband, as a dad, as a brother, as a son, and as your pastor. 
Because if Apostle Paul dealt with problems which are wholly more significant than I'm aware of yet at this church, and yet his praise intensity, his thanksgiving frequency, his faith, hope, and love completely surpassed mine. I am somewhat ashamed, but challenged in a good way that I need to become a lot more like Apostle Paul. I need his perspective. See, in the comic strip, the cartoon, The Peanuts, Linus is curled up reading a book, and Lucy is standing right behind him, and she got a funny look on her face, and she turns to Linus and says, it's very strange. It happened just by looking at you. Linus turns around and says to Lucy, what happens? Here's what Lucy says. I can feel a criticism coming on. I can feel a criticism coming on. And my friends, apart from God's perspective, that is usually all you will ever feel coming on. It is a sorry first world complaint. It is an unnecessary criticism. It's an overly critical analytical attitude born from entitlement and pride and all kinds of a host of other things. It might be mixed in there that those are very fair, legitimate complaints. Yes, but my friend, do you have any perspective? Proud people, I know them well. They annoy me and disturb me a lot because I can identify people like me. If you're really turned off by proud, cocky people, it tells you a lot about yourself. Proud people are insecure people. Proud people can't give evidence of grace to anyone else. You know why? Because you're so busy trying to serve yourself. Here's an experiment, if you dare. If you dare. If you turn to your spouse, the longer you've been married, the more painful it'll be. Husband or wife, can I ask you, do I make you more aware of the evidences of grace or just the areas in need of growth? Which one do I tend to do more? Ask your kids if you dare. Ask your kids if you dare. Do I make you more aware of what God is up to and what he has done? And daddy is thankful and he's praising God more than Here's all the things you still got to fix. You got to get better at this. You really got to, you're disappointing me. You really got to get better at this. Ask your closest of friends. If you have really close friends. But part of the closest of friends happens to be your friends can sense or feel from you. It just oozes out of you. Are you a person who will call out a divine perspective or is it always going to be something critical? You know, our staff here at Christ Central, some of the developed maturity I could never deserve, but we've added a layer of like mid-year staff review, evaluations, and you might be wondering, what in the world is a church doing? That sounds so business or corporate, that sounds cold. And first reaction of people might be, oh, I don't want to get interrogated like that. I don't want to be exposed. Oh, it sounds kind of like rough. No, I go ask the staff. Do we as a church, when we do evaluations for one another, are we learning to 
call out more of the evidences of grace rather than just the areas in need of growth. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more life-giving and empowering and releasing of how people do actually grow when they can breathe in a culture of grace. So how? How did Paul gain and grow in such a perspective of grace? How was he like that? Why would he be like that? If he had joined my church, he'd be the first so exuberant and sincere in his thanksgiving and praise to God for like really messed up churches. How, how is he like that? I'll tell you how he's like that. It's because he never got over his own story of grace. Paul never got over his own story of grace. He replayed it. And he didn't just replay it. He got more wrecked and grateful for it. Do you remember Paul? Paul was the guy who was terrorizing, imprisoning, and killing off Christians. And he said, I used to try to obey the law. I thought being religious enough would get me to heaven. I thought being moral enough would get me loved and blessed by God. I thought being studious enough would earn a righteousness for me. But here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. The more and more I tried my darndest to be loved and accepted by God, the more it killed me. It killed me. I knew I couldn't do it until Jesus Christ came and called me and graced me. Apostle Paul replays the gospel, the story that Jesus Christ came to live and do for him what Paul could never do for himself. And that is, Jesus lived a life you could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve as sinners. And he rose again bodily from the grave so that you and I can be irreversibly, deeply beloved, justified, sanctified, and one day glorified sons and daughters of God. Paul never got over his story of grace. And so if you remember from 1 Timothy, Paul just looks out upon the whole world, and I know the world gives up on some people and says, no, that's a lost cause. No, this person's too addictive. No, that person's too draining. No, this person's too painful. No, let's just be cynical. Let's give up. Let's be complacent. Let's not try too hard. That's not Paul. That was never Paul. He was eminently hopeful and humble. He was eminently thankful. Here's why. If God could change someone like me, I know God can change any of you. If God could save and love someone like me, I know he can save and love any of you. If the best that God has to offer in Jesus Christ came to me at my worst, then why would I ever dare presume? That God's best could not come to you at your worst. I've got two applications. We're done. Number one, do not critique or correct without gaining perspective first. I am not saying don't ever critique or correct. No, it's absolutely godly and necessary. But don't do that without divine perspective of grace. Don't try to lead or serve, especially a church without this. 
People are very, very sensitive, maybe overly sensitive and savvy to your personal impatience or irritations. Or that you might not like a certain type of person. Or that you hold some kind of vendetta or grudge against that person. Remind yourself again and again and again of the calling and the grace of God upon anyone and everyone who comes into his church. Mike Iaconelli, in one of his books, he observed, authentic growth can't be reduced to a formula, a book, or a program. Sanctification is the wild search of God in the tangled jungle of your soul involving a mix of messy reality, wild obedience, frustrating stuckness, and overcoming slowness. You see, if you replay your story of grace, and if you replay your progress since then, replay your progress since you got saved in grace by Jesus, how much have you grown? What did it take? I'll replay mine. (laughs) There's so many regressions. There's so many back, like, lapses. There's so many seasons where it seemed utterly slow and winding and lost. So why would I turn around and demand and expect that of someone else? Some arbitrary, crazy timetable or some like perfect graph that's always on an incline. Don't correct a critique without gaining perspective first. And you gain perspective by replaying your story of grace and you replay how hard and how long it's taken for God to get me to change. Here's a second. Here's a second. So what is your predominant perspective of the church? You can tell what your predominant perspective of the church is simply by what you usually say about the church or your small group or people of the church or the programs. What you usually say, um, what you usually think, what you usually feel, uh, whether or not you pray for the church. If you do pray, what do you pray for? And certainly if you ever written written blogs or Yelp reviews or critiques, what you would write about a church. Those are usually very reliable revelations of what your posture and your perspective of the church is. And I'd like for us to examine that up against Paul's. You know, part of our worship, which is not a throwaway, is the Apostles' Creed. And we all confess historically because Christian faith is greater than any of us. We didn't make this up. It came to us. It found us. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Toward the end it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then tucked right in there twice it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which means universal, and the communion of saints. Did you remember that part? The apostles all got together and says, what is the vital core statements of Christian faith? What do Christians profess and love? Well, I believe in God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and I also believe in the church. Do you? Most people in America love the first part. Me and Jesus, we're good, we're fine, but not as people. 
Well, my friend, First John turns around and asks you, no one can claim I really love Jesus. I really am all about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord over my life. But when it comes to the people Jesus died for, I don't like them too much. I'm going to stay away. No, the Apostles' Creed comes back at us and says, you cannot really believe in Jesus. You cannot really love Jesus to the fullest extent without believing in and loving the people of God, the saints, sanctified the church. My friends, the problem usually is just not the problem. Just not. I mean, my married life has told me this like a thousand times over. Sonny and I start to fight over something. We thought that was a problem. But then the way we fought about it becomes the bigger problem. See, the problem is not the problem. It's how you deal with the problem. And because Sonny and I, our tone or our manner of speaking or our manner of cutting each other off or our manner of not really listening or our manner of not really being empathetic or our manner of not really being humble, a manner of really not having divine perspective of grace... We take the problem. We think that was the problem. No. How you dealt with the problem created a nuclear problem. And that's the problem. And that's usually the problem that wrecks churches. It's how the people of God actually deal with problems. Oh, Apostle Paul comes around and shows us there are plenty of people who can identify, analyze, Blame, critique, judge, hate, yes. But Paul himself is commissioned, and he commissioned Timothy and Titus to problem-filled situations in which, are you going to make that better, or are you just going to make it bitter? Are you going to diffuse some of that pressure which comes from a lack of grace, or are you going to actually make it whole and heal it with divine perspective? The church of Jesus Christ, the one that Apostle Paul founded by direct command by Jesus Christ, does not exist to keep sin, sinful people out. I don't know if you knew that. The church of Jesus Christ exists to invite every sinner in. The church of Jesus Christ is a group of people who've been called and sanctified and called saints, not because we deserve it, but because grace and peace isn't given to us and the people of God have found lavish, surprising grace for any sin, all kinds of sins, repeated sins, addictive sins, any and every sinner, we have found grace here. So the church exists not to keep sinners out. It's to invite people to come in with your sin. I don't know what overcame me. Today I drove a little bit because I got to go back to Artesia, run an errand. And I was listening to an old Keith Green song. And that man had a passionate voice. And I was just overcome by every summer I reflect upon. God called my family here 11 years ago. And I was overcome, absolutely overcome, by gratitude and thanks, by all the evidences and progress of God's grace. And I started to recall 11 years ago, the question I asked among our servant leaders is the first question I asked, and it's always the question we're still trying to answer and live up to. I shared, back as an English ministry of Sri Lanka Presbyterian Church, the problem I find among the leaders of churches 
is that we usually ask the question, how can I make a church suited for me? What's in it for me, my family, and my kids? But I do think a better question to ask would be, what's in this church for my unchurched friend? What's in this church for someone who is yet to know and be saved by Jesus Christ? And I'll ask you, if you never ask the second question, or you're never busy or concerned about what's in the church for sinners who have yet to come, I think it's because you lost perspective. I think you're utterly confused. Because this church is not yours, it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And churches exist to welcome and invite sinners, not keep them out. Uh, we become a more welcoming church, not necessarily because we tell you to do it or train you how to do it, and we get a better website, and we've got clearer signs out there, and better donuts, better coffee, and more goodies to give away. Although all of that will help. But the greatest, the greatest force of any church becoming welcoming, inviting, are people who have been recreated and replay the grace of God in Christ Jesus. I'll close with Mike Iaconelli's last observation in a book entitled, Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. Here's his last observation I want to share. The grace of God is dangerous. It's lavish, excessive, outrageous, and scandalous. God's, race is God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. Apparently, God doesn't care about who he loves. He is not very careful about the people he calls his friends or the people he calls his church. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power, the truth, and the grace of your word and your spirit that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, oh God, for every cold, cynical, negative, problem-obsessed, pain-replaying person in this room, would you please liberate us to see whose church whose people, whose life, whose story, all of it, that it really belongs to you. And I pray, oh God, that you would breathe in renewed faith, hope, and love. God, we pray that Christ Central would not be a cynical, complacent people, that we would not just be a complaining or critical people, but we'd be a people recreated and extending divine grace. Give us this perspective. Help us to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.